Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we have with us um, somebody who's going to help us dig in deep on some of the issues of the day, but none other than Amanda Tyler. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm more blessed than I deserve. You look comfy. I love your home setting there. It's pretty dope. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we start each one of our episodes by having our guests walk us through the arc of their careers. And you're an academic and author, and you've been in private practice and at the DOJ. Can you walk listeners through each of your career stops after you finished Harvard Law? Well, I actually worked at the Justice Department before I went to law school, and it confirmed for me that I wanted to be a lawyer because I was surrounded by these extraordinary people doing amazing things in the Clinton administration and a lot of women lawyers in particular. So uh, they were role models for me, and it encouraged me to dream big and, and go to law school. After I graduated from law school, I clerked for two years, first on the Second Circuit, and then to my great good fortune, I clerked at the Supreme Court for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And that too changed uh, my life in many important ways. Uh, she is was was and remains an inspiration to me and encouraged me to think and dream big with my career. I initially went into private practice. Uh, I had hoped to serve in government, but the election that happened shortly after I finished clerking didn't go the way I'd hoped. Um, and so I went into private practice and I did a whole range of things, trial work, criminal defense work, and a lot of appellate work. And I love the appellate work, which confirmed for me that I like to write and I like to play with big ideas on a theoretical stage. So I decided at that point to go into academia, and I've been a professor for almost 20 years now. Oh, wow. So before I get to your book on Justice Ginsburg, um, I've got two things I want to talk about, given your expertise and experience. The end of affirmative action in higher education. I just, I'm going to call it like it is. I'm not going to give people too much hope because I don't think it's necessary to have it. And yeah. what you're seeing from this DOJ with respect to President Trump. So on the first, uh, on the first count, can you talk a little bit about what you expect the Supreme Court to do this summer with respect to affirmative action? And what do you think Justice Ginsburg would say uh, about where this current court is headed on issues like race and affirmative action? I, I think you're right not to paint a hopeful picture. I do not expect the court to uphold affirmative action. I expect them to overrule Bakke. This is a court now composed that is not reluctant in the least to overrule longstanding uh, precedents. We saw them do it with respect to Roe and Casey last term. I think we'll see it with Baki and, and uh, the cases that followed this term. They, uh, the majority, most of them are on record against affirmative action. What Justice Ginsburg would say, I think, is well laid out in the decisions, the many decisions she actually wrote in this area. I was recently going through those decisions, and I knew there were some. I didn't realize there were as many as there were. She was a consistent voice for the proposition that when we talk about equality in this country, meaningful, real equality, we have to study and appreciate the context. And for many uh, in this country, that means that we need to have affirmative action programs in order to ensure true, meaningful, equal opportunity for equality. And uh, she, as I said, was a consistent voice for this. So I have no doubt where she would be in the pending cases. Unfortunately, she would not be in the majority uh, if you put her on this nine member current court. 
On the second count, I see you teach federal courts. Do you think this DOJ and Jack Smith, who I love, by the way, anytime you have a guy named Jack Smith, you know he's about his business. Do you think this DOJ ultimately seeks to indict and prosecute Trump? And how should we understand the various federal and potential state issues that the former president is facing? How do you think this all plays out? Well, um, you know, I'm watching as closely as you are. I'm, I'm quite intrigued to see how it plays out because pretty much across the board, we're in uncharted territory. And that is really interesting because it means that the decision makers are having to confront, uh, in many cases, decisions that others haven't confronted before. I'm someone who studies the courts and certainly writes and thinks a lot about the separation of powers, but I also do a lot of legal history. And so my work is often inflected by trying to bring to the table what people have done in the past. So for example, writing about how presidents have confronted detention of prisoners in wartime in the past is something on which I've written books. Here, the attorney general is, again, he's in uncharted territory. So I think he's faced with some very tricky decisions. I think like many hard decisions, there's, there's, a no, uh, there's no way he can win across the board, which is to say he's never going to please everyone. So I think uh, both in his case and in the case of the local prosecutors, they have to step back and think about the bigger principles. And those need to be the guideposts through which they make the decisions. What, what, are, in those terms of, what are those principles, though? I didn't mean to interrupt, but I mean, is the principle like the rule of law or do they need to look at the threat to democracy or do they need to look at the way that 50 percent of the country or 74 million voters may interpret their decision? Well, I would suggest not the last. Um, <laughs> I, I think, again, they can't win. There's no way that, that a decision of this magnitude is going to please everyone. We know that. We, we know the times we live in. I think this probably would be true at any point in time in American history. I think it's important to step back and to think about how the founding generation conceived of the presidency. You have to recall in the Articles of Confederation, we didn't even have an executive. There was so much suspicion and, and um, really doubt about whether a central executive figure built in the mold of a king could, could be appropriate in this new country that we were trying to build. The king had been, um, you know, had, had trampled on the rights of individuals and really had not allowed for robust democracy in the colonies. And so it's only very reluctantly that at the Constitutional Convention, we come to adopt and, and create the presidency. And, in, and even there, initially, the proposal was to have two executives, not, not to put all of this in one person. And I share all of that because it leads to what I think is one of the most important principles that needs to be taken into account. And that is really fundamental in American law. And that is that no person is above the law. And so if you think about that, then that will lead you down a road potentially of prosecution uh, that again is uncharted territory. But I, I think if you're in a situation where you can't win, you have to wrestle with some of those founding era basic principles. And if you're not gonna move forward, have good reasons why. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. 
You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Let's talk about your book about Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. What inspired you to write about her? You personally, I know we all love her, but what inspired you personally to write this? She and I actually did it together. It's it's, um, written by both of us. And the idea was to create a picture, sort of an easy to digest volume of her legacy. Uh, We worked on this in the last year of her life. And among other things, I asked her, what are your very favorite opinions? If someone says, you know, I love RBG, but I've never actually read any of her opinions, what opinions would you want them to read? And she identified four, three of which are dissents. And we can talk about that if you're interested. Uh, But then we also worked backwards. We looked at the period when she was an advocate, changing American history in the 1970s to open up opportunities uh, for all genders, but particularly women and fighting for gender equality. And she picked her favorite oral arguments. She picked her very first brief she filed in a case which had never been published. Um, So we have that in there. We have a lot of other materials, including her last speeches she gave where she reflects on her life and her family. Her her family is a family of immigrants and she reflects on their story. Um, She talks about uh, the Jewish influences in her life and many other things. So. What it is meant to be, uh, as we conceived of it, is, like I said, an easily digestible window into her legacy as she viewed it. And I was just privileged to be along for the ride, to write the introductions and some of the other uh, introductory material throughout the book, and then to carry it through. We had turned it into the publisher three weeks before she died. And um, obviously, after she died, then it was on me and I added a few images, but otherwise, and I wrote an afterward, but otherwise I really didn't change anything from the original manuscript. This is a short question with a long answer here, but what do you ultimately think Justice Ginsburg's legacy will be, uh, particularly when you look at where the court shifted after her? And you can actually weave in about those four dissents too. That's pretty intriguing. Yeah. Yeah. It would be impossible not to talk about the dissents. She, I think, identified them because she saw in real time that the court was shifting. Um, She dissented just as much in the first half of her career as as the back half, actually, at the Supreme Court. But the dissents in the second half were in bigger, high-profile constitutional cases, like Shelby County, like Hobby Lobby, like Ledbetter. Um, You know, I could go on. uh, Little Sisters of the Poor, the last opinion she wrote was in a reproductive rights case where she was on the losing end. It was a dissent. So she knew that the tide had been turning against 
many of the things that she had spent her career fighting for, and she wasn't willing to give up the fight. I think she was leaving us a roadmap for the fights that need to continue. And for her, they started always with voting rights. As she wrote in Shelby County, the vote is the most fundamental of rights because it is the vehicle through which we all have a voice to protect all of our other rights. And so for her, the continuing battle to preserve the Voting Rights Act and to open up opportunities to vote, to dismantle discrimination and discriminatory practices in voting, that was fundamental for her. Beyond that, then it was a lifetime of work in support of the proposition that we need to open up opportunities to allow for true meaningful equality for people um, from all walks of life. The idea being, uh, as she wrote in her great VMI decision in 1996, every individual should have the equal opportunity to aspire and achieve their full human potential. That was what she spent her life's work trying to preserve and promote And she liked to celebrate, as she also did in that VMI decision, the proposition that the greatest aspect of our constitutional history is that we have extended and expanded rights to categories of persons who were once excluded from the protections of the Constitution or ignored uh, from those protections. That, she says, is what makes, she said, is really what makes us great and is what we should be celebrating. And unfortunately, what we see in the current times is uh, that we're retreating some from that, uh, as, as she would call, you know, borrowing from Dr. King, that long arc of, of history. And um, I think if she were here, she would say, roll up your sleeves, keep doing the work and keep fighting for these things because they are of fundamental importance when we think about our constitution and who we are and who we want to be. Looking to invest? Start your journey by exploring exchange-traded funds with GlobalX ETFs. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. GlobalX specializes in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. It takes a lot of hard work to make it look easy. This Mother's Day, Duluth Trading Co. can help you give her something that keeps up. Whether you prefer to shop online or in-store, Duluth has a motherload of gear, goods, and gifts to keep her comfortable and capable, no matter what needs doing. With Duluth's problem-solving details and legendary durability to boot, you'll finally be mom's favorite again. Check out DuluthTrading.com for all your Mother's Day gifting needs. Let me ask you this. I have a couple more substantive questions for you, but this one is one that jumps out that since you're here, I have to ask. There's a school of thought that felt that she stayed too long and that she should have stepped down when President Obama was elected and when Democrats had Senate majorities. What do you make of that criticism of Justice Ginsburg? I think, you know, 2020 hindsight is always uh, a little clearer than in the moment. 
What I would say is that this is somebody who loved her job and she loved it because she loved being a public servant. As I mentioned earlier, she was the child of immigrants. Her father immigrated. Her mother was born only months after her family immigrated. In both cases, the families were fleeing persecution of Jews in Europe and uh, in Eastern Europe. And for that reason, she was eternally grateful to this country for giving refuge to her family and her people. And she spent a life of service trying to repay what she viewed as a debt. She said, I owe so much to this country in many speeches. And so I think that's a big part of her legacy and why she stayed on as long as she did. She was deeply devoted to being a public servant. And the other thing I will say is that when President Obama was in office, which would have been the time she would have considered it, she was given a clean bill of health by her doctors. And so she had no reason to think that her cancer would return. And she was very hopeful, I think, that the 2016 election would go differently <laughs> than it did. Yes, we all were. And I think for her, it would have been especially meaningful and wonderful to give the honor of replacing her or, or the opportunity of replacing her to a, our first woman president. I think that would have been especially meaningful to her. So I, th I think there were a lot of things in play, unfortunately. Again, we, you know, we can't go back and change history. Um, I will say that I think the single biggest factor in all of this that we should not lose sight of is the outcome of the 2016 election, because at the time of the election, there was an open seat at the Supreme Court. And yet people still voted for Donald Trump and in so doing wound up giving him not one, not two, but three spots on the Supreme Court. And so I, I will say, I think, I, you know, people should criticize her as much as they want, but I think the criticism is overblown because at the end of the day, even if she had retired, I'm not sure we wouldn't be in the exact same spot given how many appointments Donald Trump got. Uh, my last substantive question for you before I ask the most important question is, and I ask this to all the authors who come from Amanda Tyler to Cicely Tyson, how did um, writing this book about Justice Ginsburg changing you? Um, and how, if at all, did it change how you approach your students and your scholarship? Wow, that's a great question. Um, it changed me in the sense that if it was possible, it made me admire Justice Ginsburg even more. What do I mean by that? I got to work with her in the final year and the final weeks of her life. And I had always known her to be extraordinary. She had cancer for the, she had cancer, excuse me, for the first time the year I clerked for her. And so I witnessed firsthand how tough and strong she was and how dedicated she was. I got to see that again in spades in the final months of her life when she was fighting so hard to hang on and she was still doing the work. Um, you know, she was marking up drafts extensively just weeks before she died. She was voting in cases, writing opinions over the summer. It's really extraordinary what she did and how hard she was fighting to hang on. And, you know, it's probably not healthy to sort of play her out as this almost superhero type figure, but she definitely was somewhat superhuman that last summer. And um, I think it really spoke volumes of how much she loved the rule of law and she loved this country that she was fighting so hard to hang on. 
So I really just developed an even greater appreciation and, and love of her and, and just found her awe-inspiring. In terms of how it's affected how I think about working with my students, you know, I've had to think a lot about her legacy as a result of how we were putting the book together and what we were including, and then talking about it in the wake of her death. And it's inspired me in a way that has been really helpful because with my teaching, because it's very easy right now, if you believe in the things that Justice Ginsburg believed in, as I do, to be discouraged. And a lot of law students in particular are really discouraged. And I think it's important to channel what she believed in and what she viewed as the fights we need to keep having. We need to keep the things we need to keep working for and to really use my platform as a teacher, as a person who is training the next generation of lawyers to rally them to carry on this work. And so that is how uh, thinking about her legacy and, and working on the book with her really has helped fuel a new energy in my teaching to try and train those lawyers to keep doing that work. Last question for you. How can people follow you on social media? How can people buy the book? The most important question of the interview. Uh, well, that's a very nice question for you to ask. Thank you. Uh, the book is now out in paperback. I'm very excited to say this month, Simon & Schuster released the book in paperback with a snazzy new cover which is, I'll, I'll actually grab it. It's a fantastic picture, picture of Justice Ginsburg that I just love. Um, it's sort of her sheepish grin, uh, you know, and and um, so that's out in paperback from Simon & Schuster this month. Uh, I'd like to think it's a great read. It's very accessible. It's not written just for lawyers. In terms of following me, I'm on Twitter at Professor Amanda Tyler. Amanda Tyler, thank you so much for joining the Bakari Sellers podcast. Thank you for having me, Bakari. It's great to meet you. All right. Be blessed. Thank you. Have a great day.